uh, am married. I have a wife and three daughters. My oldest daughter is seven, and then we have five-year-old twins. Uh, and uh, my wife and I are both teachers, so we try to take full advantage of our summers by traveling a lot. Uh, this summer, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, we were in 17 states and drove a little over 7,000 miles this summer, so my daughters are very well acquainted with our Subaru. Uh, the longest trip that we did at any one time was we went from Kansas City to Southwest Florida to Naples, which I'm sure many of you are familiar of. My mom spends half the year down there. So uh, we drove from Kansas City to Southwest Florida. We took three days to do it. Day one, we drove from Kansas City to Chattanooga. We spent the night tent camping. Then we drove from Chattanooga to Northern Florida. Everyone says the best time to camp in Northern Florida is June, so that's what we did. So we went tent camping uh, June in northern Florida, spent the night, and then we drove from northern Florida down to southwest Florida, and for those of you that have driven through Florida before, you feel like we made it to Florida, but it's like forever long, okay? So we get about 50 miles from Naples, and in the car, the low tire pressure light comes on, and actually, uh, not long before this, my wife had had like a total blowout. Uh, uh, on the expressway around here in Kansas City. So when the low pressure, pressure light went on, we were like extra sensitive to this. I pull over to the side of the road right away, and I, I get out of the car, I check, and lo and behold, we had picked up a roofing nail about 50 miles away from where we were meant to be going, slow leak uh, in, in one of the tires. So uh, we get on our phones and we look, and it turns out we're close to a Walmart, thankfully like a mile and a half away from a Walmart with a tire center. We, we get back in the car, drive to this Walmart, pull in there, hey, we've got this nail in the tire, can you plug it? They say, yeah, it'll be about three hours, 50 miles away. Now, at the very same time this summer, I also happened to be reading a biography on Daniel Boone. I was actually reading it like while we were on this trip, and so his story is going on in the background of my mind. In the fall of 1769... Daniel Boone and five other men left from what would become North Carolina to travel through the Appalachian Mountains to the region of Kentucky. And that area was totally unsettled. No settlements, no camps, just wilderness. Uh, <clears throat> this, this ground wasn't even settled by native people. They just uh, used it as a hunting ground. And so Daniel and five other men, they traveled to this area of Kentucky, fall of 1769, to go on what should be a few month long hunting trip. Hunting is successful through the fall, uh, but uh, not easy, and so two of the men decide to go back in December of 1769, leaving only four men behind. One of the remaining four men went missing later that winter and was never, never found. Three men remained. That disappearance startled one of the three, so he decided to return, to return home as well. This left only Daniel and his brother, Squire. In the spring of 1770, Daniel and Squire were running low on supplies, so they decided that Squire would travel back to North Carolina to resupply for the fall hunting season of 1770. Daniel spent the summer in Kentucky totally alone. Squire returned in the fall. They had a successful hunting season through the fall and winter, and in the spring of 1771, they had enough furs that, in a market hunting economy, would have made them considerably wealthy upon their return to North Carolina. They made their way back that spring, and just days before they got home, 
they were robbed of everything they had. So after two years away from his wife and children, Daniel returned home empty-handed a few days later. So I'm in a Walmart parking lot, <laughs> plugging my tire, and I've got this story on the back of my mind. And the nail in, in my tire just didn't seem like that big a deal. I actually found myself thankful for safe, reliable cars, for interstates, for Walmart, even for roofing nails. It's amazing, I think, what a little perspective can do. Our text this morning, I think, is all about perspective. At the beginning of this text, Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. That's because he wrote this letter from prison. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. And the rest of this passage, after Paul introduces himself in that way, is essentially just an aside. He's explaining, or I think better, framing that situation, his imprisonment. Paul wants to tell the Ephesians how, in his mind, he became a prisoner and how he thinks of that imprisonment. This text is about the perspective in which Paul thinks about his ministry and imprisonment, and here is Paul's perspective. The story of God's global project of redemption is the story of history. The story of God's global project of redemption is the story of history. And this morning, we're going to see how that perspective plays out in Paul's life and thinking, and how that same perspective can and should positively affect our lives. Let's look first at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You can either follow along uh, in your Bible, or the text is, is up on the slide for you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made, made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, has been, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here Paul begins this explanation of his status as a prisoner by making reference to some mystery. This mystery was unknown for many previous generations, but now in Paul's time has been graciously revealed to Paul and others, and Paul doesn't keep us guessing about what this mystery is. He tells us, precisely what it is. In verse 6, he tells us that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. To you and to me, probably mostly Gentiles, removed about 2,000 years from the revelation of this mystery, it perhaps doesn't seem that mysterious. But I want to give you some insight into the thinking of many, perhaps most, Jews in the first century, and almost certainly into the mind of Paul, uh, what he thought about the Messiah prior to his conversion to Christianity during his time as a Pharisee. Of course, I'm generalizing here, but in general, the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah, 
But they were expecting that Messiah to be a certain sort of person. Israel, Jerusalem were occupied by the Romans, and they expected the Messiah to be a military and political leader like David. Their expectation was that this person would drive the Romans out of Jerusalem and usher in a period of peace, religious faithfulness, and prosperity. This idea was so well and deeply embedded in the minds of the Jews of the first century that they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he came. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. And this is true even of Jesus' own disciples. This is probably why they were jockeying for position as Jesus' right-hand man and so frequently misunderstood the things that Jesus said and did. This is why they were so shocked when Jesus started to intimate that he was going to die. They were so afraid when he did die, and they were thoroughly confused when he resurrected. It's amazing how frequently the disciples are confused in the Gospels. I want to show you just one example from Scripture that illustrates this. I think there's good biblical reason to believe that even after Jesus' death and resurrection, his own disciples still expected Jesus to be some sort of political figure. If you're following along with me in your own Bible and you're a fast flipper, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're not, that's fine. Uh, We'll have the, the text of Acts up here on the screen. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Acts 1, 1 through 6. In the, thir- in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke here, the author of Acts, is referring to his other book, the Gospel of Luke. In this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, during this 40-day period near the end, just before Jesus' ascension, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a question that's easy to just read right over when you're reading the book of Acts, but I, I, the way I interpret this, and maybe, I don't know, the way I read this so often is that Jesus, the, the disciples are like, cool trick, Jesus, with the death and resurrection thing, but are you going to take over Jerusalem now, or like, what's happening? They still don't get it. They still don't get it. His own disciples, it seems here, still expected Jesus to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is what the Jews expected the Messiah to do. And almost certainly, this is what Paul, Paul the Pharisee, Paul prior to his conversion, this is what Paul expected the Messiah to do. He likely would have expected to be this highly religious, law-abiding, political figure who restored prosperity to Israel. What a surprise then that Paul while he was on his way to zealously defend what he thought of as Jewish orthodoxy, so committed to this idea that he was willing to oversee and approve of the execution of Christians, 
He had a mind-altering, life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus. This is the story of Acts chapter 9. And he came to know a mystery that revolutionized his life. The Jewish Messiah is a Gentile Savior. The Jewish Messiah is a Gentile Savior. This is the mystery to which Paul is referring in Ephesians 3. God's project of redemption was never ultimately just about the Jews. The Messiah was not meant to save Jerusalem. He was meant to save the world. As Peter put it in his very first sermon in the book of Acts, this message, the message of redemption and reconciliation and new life by grace through faith in the Jewish Messiah is for the Jews, yes, but also for those who are far off. This is the same language that Paul uses to describe the Gentiles in the passage that we looked at last week. In Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, who is a Gentile Savior... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God. What Paul came to know when this mystery was revealed to him was that God's project of redemption was taking place on a much larger scale than he had imagined. That God was doing something bigger and better than he had expected. That the story of God's project of redemption is not just a story about Israel, it's a, it is the story of human history. The overarching narrative, it is the thing that God has been up to since the fall, is up to now, and will be up to until this project is consummated in the second coming of Christ. The story of God's project of redemption is not a story, it is the story The story of the King and Kings and Lord of Lords is the story of stories. It is perspective on the grandest scale. Paul came to think of his life, its purpose, and even his imprisonment in that context. And so, in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, when Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, he pauses to explain that this is the context in which he thinks of that imprisonment. Paul goes on to describe how his life was changed by getting on board with that project. Look back at the the text of Ephesians 3 with me. You can flip back in your Bibles from Acts to Ephesians 3. No more flipping, I promise. Look back at Ephesians 3. We're going to pick up the text in verse 7. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Here's what I think Paul is getting at in this section. Paul's new perspective changed his priorities. Paul's new perspective changed his priorities. 
What used to matter to Paul as a Pharisee, it didn't really matter to him anymore, at least not in the same way. Elsewhere in Philippians 3, Paul says that everything he once thought of as gain, he now considers loss for the sake of Christ. Paul doesn't just have a new understanding. He has a new mission, a new set of priorities, a new sense of what is important. And this happens at least in part because Paul comes to realize that God's project of redemption is a grand global project meant to bring all those who are far off near to God once again. And by God's grace, he gets on board with that project. He becomes a minister of the gospel. And very quickly, I want to talk about four parts of that process that I think Paul outlines here in verses 7 through 12. First, Paul says that he got on board, uh, got on board with God's project of redemption by God's grace. Paul's priorities changed because of God's grace. It's not because of his merit, his religious zeal, or his insight that Paul gets on board with the project. It's entirely because of God's unmerited favor. God gives Paul some things that he did not deserve. The grace and faith of the gospel, a revelation about what God is really up to in the world, and an invitation to get on board with that project. They are not things that Paul earns. They are things that God gives. Paul's priorities change because of God's grace. Second, and closely related to the first, Paul says that he got on board with God's project of redemption despite his sin. Paul's priorities changed despite his sin. Here Paul says that he is the very least of the saints. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. When, by God's grace, Paul becomes aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he at the same time becomes acutely aware of his sinfulness and insufficiency. And yet that awareness does not defeat or disqualify him from getting on board with God's project. It is the very reason why he gets on board. In a beautiful paradox... It is precisely this new awareness of his sin, an ironic gift of God's grace, that prepares him for redemption. Paul's priorities changed despite his sin. Third, Paul says he got on board with God's project of redemption according to God's eternal purposes. Paul's priorities change according to God's eternal purpose. God did not invite Paul to get on board with his project because the project was getting stale and he was looking for some new ideas or some fresh perspective. Paul does not bring his priorities to God's project. Instead, God's invitation was for Paul to drop his priorities and to pick up God's eternal purposes. Paul's priorities changed according to God's eternal purposes. Finally, fourth... Paul emphasizes that those who have been redeemed by God's grace and are now on board with God's project of redemption can pursue our redemptive priorities with boldness because we have confident access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful. Let me summarize it this way. The pursuit of Paul's new priorities were enabled by access to God. The pursuit of Paul's new priorities were enabled by access to God. To God. Prior to his conversion as a Pharisee, 
Paul pursued his priorities with his own zeal. In fact, just prior to his conversion in Acts chapter 9, uh, uh, Luke tells us that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's a very descriptive, sort of visceral uh, uh, way of telling us about Paul sort of foaming with hatred. But subsequent to his, to his conversion, Paul came to realize that it was only by the power of God's sustaining grace that he could live a life of ministry. In one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Colossians 1.29, Paul outlines first what he hopes to achieve in ministry, and then he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love that insight into Paul's ministry. I toil, I struggle, but I do it with his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was able to do the work of being on board with God's project, verse 12, because he had access to the one who sustained him through faith in Jesus Christ. And here in this section towards the end, in verse 12, I want you to notice a shift in this passage. Paul shifts from I language, talking about himself and his story, to we language, saying that in Jesus Christ, we who are redeemed have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And so I want to make that same transition from talking about Paul to talking about us. For you, it's probably not news that a Gentile can be a Christian. That's not the main thing to take away from the sermon this morning. This is not a great revelation for you and I. But I do wonder, and I think it's worth reflecting on this question, to what extent have you gotten on board with God's project of redemption? I'm not asking, are you saved? I'm asking, have you and I, we who are saved, have we gotten on board with what God is doing in the world? Has this idea of God's grand project of redemption captivated you and me in the way that it captivated Paul? Has the revelation of God's project of redemption had the same impact on our priorities as it had on his? Perspective should change our priorities. I think that God is offering us the same invitation that he offered to Paul. God doesn't just redeem us. He offers us the opportunity to get on board with his project of redemption. I think Paul, now Pastor Paul, not the Apostle Paul, did a powerful job raising this issue in his sermon last week. God is up to something in the world. He is at work on a global project, and by His grace, He gives us, He gives His eternal purpose to our lives. Think about that. God gives His eternal purpose to our lives. And He does this by inviting us on board with what He is doing. And while that may mean that you become a minister of the gospel in the ordinary sense of the phrase, making a contribution to this project is something you can do wherever you find yourself in your Monday life. I love Christ Community's Church for Monday philosophy. I don't care whether you're a nurse, an engineer, a bus driver, a stay-at-home mom, a student, or a cashier. If you and I become captivated with this idea that God is at work redeeming the world through Jesus Christ, 
and he has invited us to be on board with that project, then we have the opportunity to live lives of eternal purpose right here and now. Think about what our city would be like if it was filled with nurses and engineers and bus drivers and stay-at-home moms and students and cashiers who had God's project of redemption on the top of their mind every day. Think about the testimony we would have as the church of Jesus Christ if we had a reputation of being agents of redemption and reconciliation at the bus stop and in the classroom, at the hospital and in the office, in our homes and at the job site. Imagine how your life would change if, when you woke up every day, your top priority was not to make money or finish the laundry or finally get that project done, but to do your work redemptively, whatever that work might be. We have the opportunity to get on board with what God is doing in the world and make a contribution to the project of redemption, not because of our merit, but because of God's grace, not because of our righteousness, but despite our sin, not according to our plans, but according to God's eternal purposes, and not because of our strength, but because of the sustaining access we have to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul came to realize that the Jewish Messiah was a Gentile Savior. That new perspective radically changed his priorities, and finally, that new perspective graciously provided him with a framework for understanding his suffering. Paul's perspective graciously framed his suffering. Remember, this passage is almost entirely a side note. Paul begins by describing himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, and he feels the need to explain this. And at the very end of the passage, Paul returns to this idea, having established a new perspective a new frame of reference for his imprisonment. Look with me at the end of this passage in verse 13. So I ask you, Paul says, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Pay very close attention to what Paul is saying here because I think it's powerful and beautiful when it's rightly understood. Paul says to the Ephesians, I am a prisoner, my imprisonment is suffering, but that suffering should not cause you to lose heart. Hear this, that Paul doesn't dismiss his imprisonment as not suffering. He doesn't tell some quasi-righteous lie that what is bad is somehow good. This isn't put on a happy face Christianity. Instead, he calls his imprisonment what it is, suffering. And yet, in light of the perspective of God's project of redemption, in light of Paul's own redemption and recruitment as a minister of that project, in light of God's eternal purposes, and in light of the sustaining access that you and I and Paul have to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he tells the Ephesians that his suffering should not cause them to lose heart. He certainly hadn't. What a beautiful and powerful gift of God's grace perspective can be. We live in a broken world. We are both victims of and contributors to that brokenness. We experience it in large and in small ways 
every day of our lives. Sometimes the brokenness of our world is predictable, and other times it breaks into our lives in sudden, tragic, and unexpected ways. I am not saying, Paul is not saying, the Bible is not saying that your suffering is not suffering. Our God is a God who sympathizes with our weakness and is literally moved to tears by our suffering and death. But at the same time, it is often the case that the subjective element of the sting of our suffering depends on our frame of reference. Please don't misunderstand me here. I I can't tell you how much this point has occupied my mind and how much I've agonized over it as I prepared for this sermon. I don't at all want to come across as being dismissive or as minimizing your suffering because that's not what the Scriptures are doing. But at the same time, I think it's a profoundly powerful provision of God's grace that He gives us perspective on our suffering so that while we might suffer, we need not lose heart. Paul makes this very same point, again, using the very same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There he says in verses 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you know anything about Paul's life or about the persecution of Christians in the first century, it's remarkable that Paul could refer to that affliction as light and momentary. Yet the size and significance of a thing is often considered in reference to something else. Paul doesn't say that his affliction or suffering is light and momentary, period. And he also doesn't say that it's not really affliction. He says that this suffering is light and momentary relative to something else. Paul was a prisoner, and Paul suffered in prison. And yet he did not lose heart, and he did not want the Ephesians to lose heart. How can we possibly not lose heart in light of all of the suffering in the world? One of God's gracious provisions is the perspective of the story of history. God made a good world. We have broken it. And yet God is at work in the world redeeming it through Jesus Christ. May we be more captivated by this grand project. And may we look forward with great anticipation to that day when the project is completed. When, as the book of Revelation describes, the dwelling place of God is with man. When God will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, so we practice communion here weekly, and it is sort of the culmination of the entire morning, what we are building towards. Um, and just such a good reminder that without the grace of God, I am a sinner and cannot partner well with him in this story. Um, so to prepare, our, to prepare us, to prepare our hearts to come to the table, we have been going through some of the New City Catechism questions and responses, and catechism is just a fancy word for that, for question and responses, and as a part of this um, Reconstructing Faith series, a uh, part of deconstruction really is just getting back to what are the basics of truth, what's the basics of faith, and catechism does exactly that. It draws us to him through these questions that we can stand firm in truth. Um, so we're going to do this next set of question together, uh, which will lead us into a time of saying the Apostles' Creed together, also preparing us to come to the table. Uh, we're going to do that in a moment. I'm going to give directions on how we do communion here first before we do this together. So we have four stations set up today. We have um, actually one in each corner of the room. So when you are ready, um, after we do the catechism together, please just go to the station that is closest to you. There will be servers there with gluten-free bread and a cup of juice that you will um, receive and then take together at the direction of your servers. And if you do not have this relationship with the Lord yet, uh, we invite you to please sit. You can take time to think. Feel free to pray, to ask questions as well. We're so glad you're here today. Um, but if Christ is your Savior, this table is open for you to come to with us today. So if you would stand with me, please. What do we believe by true faith? And you can say with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can come to the tables as you're ready.
would you please stand as we continue to worship together? There is this one gospel in which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. And oh, what a gospel, oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever, He is my life. I stand on the gospel of Jesus There is one gospel on which I cling, all else I count as lost. For there, where justice and mercy meet, He saves me on the cross. No more I boast in what I can bring, no more I carry the weight of sin, for He has brought me. To life, I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel where hope is found, the empty tomb still speaks, for death could not keep my
Amen. There is no better place to stand, right? And now can you sit again? (laughs) Sorry. Thank you for bearing with us this morning. We have a number of moving elements, and it's been a joy to do this with you. Uh, I would like to invite Lo and Tanner and their girls to join us on the platform. You got a chance uh, earlier to be blessed by Lo's prayer. Uh, for the child dedication moment, and we wanted to to take some time here just briefly at the end of service to formally introduce her and her family uh, to you. So this is Lo and her husband, Tanner, and then we've got their two daughters, Lila and Darcy, and can we give them a big round of applause? Lo and her family have attended our Brookside campus for the last few years, although even with my history at that campus, we actually had not met until engaging this process together. Uh, Lo has a background in elementary education, and she filled in this summer temporarily uh, on their staff while the children's pastor at Brookside, Annalyn Rolfe, was on sabbatical. And Lo quickly fell in love with the work of catalyzing the faith of the youngest members of our church family. And she began thinking and praying about what it would look like for her to step more formally into a children's ministry staff position. Uh, And then like days later, we posted our our job. So we had an incredible interview team. Many of you are sitting in the room this morning that came together to pray and discern God's way forward in this important hiring process. And we were thrilled by the unity of the spirit on that team and deciding to extend and offer to low to serve in this role. She jumped in a couple of uh, weeks ago, right into the deep end. She's already doing such a great job. And we could not be more excited about what God has in store. Can I pray a brief prayer of commissioning for her and her family? Let's bow your heads, bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we do uh, pray a prayer of commissioning for Lo and Tanner and their wonderful family into this role. Uh, we're so grateful for the unity of the spirit that our team experienced and that you have brought Lo and Tanner and Lila and Darcy uh, to our church family here at the Shawnee campus. I pray a blessing upon her, God, praying to you a blessing extended towards her as she works hard uh, to lead our children's ministry along with so many other people that do that great work. Um, thank you so much for her and for them. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you guys so much. One more round of applause. And one more time, let's stand. (laughs) I know, stand and sit, right? Oh, I want to send you all with a good and final word, a benediction. Uh, What could I choose other than the blessing and benediction that I gave to those little babies and children earlier? So 